Hey ladies, welcome to the Looking Above podcast. It's easy to get bogged down in details of everyday life. If we aren't intentional, our eyes can easily be pulled away from the Lord and we can set our gaze on things of earth. 2 Corinthians 4.18 says, So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. My name is Karen Boffman and I'm the women's pastor at New Life Church in Gillette, Wyoming. I believe that our perspective changes everything. So together, we'll be looking above. Welcome back to Looking Above. This is episode eight, and today we're going to be discussing John chapters 15 and 16. And as I am recording this, it is about to be Thanksgiving, and I just wanted to tell you that I'm so thankful for you, for listening, for joining me here. I'm thankful that I have the opportunity to uh, just study and share the word with you. So grateful for the book of John and how we see Jesus revealed here and the continual reminder that he is the word and that when the word remains in us, we can produce fruit. And that's what we're going to talk about today as we look into uh, this section at the beginning of John chapter 15, where Jesus reveals himself as the true vine. Now, the vine had been used in the Old Testament repeatedly to represent Israel. It had become a symbol of Israel. And whenever we saw this in the Old Testament, the Old Testament depictions of Israel as a vine, the vine was always degenerate. But here we're seeing the opposite. We're seeing Jesus as the true vine, and his followers are the branches who derive their life and their fruit-producing strength from him. He says, I am the true grapevine, not what you've thought in the past that you, Israel, who have not done a great job of being the vine. I am the vine. You are merely the branches. He says, my father is the gardener, the farmer. He cuts off every branch that doesn't produce fruit, and he prunes the branches that do bear fruit so they will produce even more. The father is tending to the vine for maximum fruitfulness. And in order to have maximum fruit, the vines must be pruned drastically. He tells them, you've already been pruned and purified by the message I have given to you. That word there is logos, which again goes back to the beginning of John chapter one, when he says, I am the word, the logos. So I I just love how throughout this entire book, we keep seeing logos or the word come back again and again. So you've already been purified by the teachings, the word that I have given you. He says, remain in me and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it's severed from the vine and you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Branches are useless if they're not connected to the vine. Spiritual fruit only comes through union with Christ. We cannot do it on our own. This word remain that he uses, some versions use the word abide. It has to do with being in continual contact with Jesus. So it means that we arrange our life, 
our prayer and our silence in such a way that there is never a day that we have a chance to forget him. This would be an interesting thing for you to talk about as you meet with a friend or as a small group. Talk about how you personally abide. It looks different for each of us. There are different practices, different spiritual habits that you might utilize that someone else might not. You can learn from each other talking about how you abide, how you continually focus on Jesus, how you continually draw your strength in and from him. Verse 6 goes on and says, Anyone who does not remain in me is thrown away like a useless branch and withers. Such branches are gathered into a pile to be burned. So dead vine branches are useless wood. They have no purpose because vine wood is too soft to be used for any use. It's only use. The only use of the vine wood of the branches is to take the life from the vine and put it into the fruit to grow the fruit. That's its entire purpose. If they're not attached to the vine, if they're not bearing fruit, they are purposeless. And the only thing that can be done with them, it says, is that they can be burned up. Verse 7, but if you remain in me and my words, words again, remain in you, you may ask anything you want and it will be granted. Jesus is the living embodiment of all of his teachings. So his word is so important. There's no practical difference between Jesus's indwelling in his disciples and his words remaining in them. He's saying, if you have my words, if you have my teachings and you keep them in you, if you put them in your heart, if you're treasuring them in your mind, if you're dwelling with my word dwelling in you, You have me in you. You have my power within you. That's so amazing to me to think about. And as I've just been reading this and mulling over this, this is why we spend time in the Word every day. And even more, I'm thinking about this and just thinking, you know, it's really important to be reading those red letter passages, the things that Jesus said, to be Putting Jesus's words into our hearts every day is so important. Verse 8, when you produce much fruit, you are my true disciples. This brings great glory to my Father. When we start to become more like Jesus, when Jesus's attributes are seen in us, we are bearing fruit. And when we bear that fruit, we're showing the world that we're his disciples, that we're his followers, and that is bringing glory to Jesus. You know, so many times we've heard here that Jesus is talking about bringing glory to his Father. This is how we bring glory to the Father. It's to be made more and more like the Son. It's to produce fruit. And how do we do that? By abiding in him. How do we do that? By reading his word, by spending time with him every day. Verse 9 goes on, I have loved you even as the Father has loved me. Remain in my love. When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love, just as I obey my Father's commandment and remain in his love. There's that word remain again or abide. Obedience is a spontaneous joy. It shouldn't be a painful duty. It says, when you obey my commandments, you remain in my love. 
our obedience allows us to remain in the love of Jesus. And verse 11 says, I've told you these things so that you will be filled with my joy. The more that we obey, the more that we are remaining in him, the more joy will grow in our lives. So we obey because of our love for Jesus, just like Jesus showed his love for the Father in his obedience. In this chapter here, in verses 3, 7, 10, and 14, we're over and over again seeing the importance of knowing Jesus' teachings so that we can obey him because we love him. And Jesus gives us, in return, his love and his joy. If we remember back in verse 14, he also told us that he gives us peace. So our reward or our benefit is love and peace and joy that come from Jesus. Verse 12 goes on, this is my commandment, and this is going to echo John chapter 13, 34, if you remember that from the last episode, this is my commandment, love each other in the same way I have loved you. And that's a love that is without measure. Verse 13, there is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. And he goes on here, and he's going to kind of flip the way they've been thinking about things. In verse 14, he says, you're my friends if you do what I command. We know this. Love and obedience go hand in hand. I no longer call you slaves because a master doesn't confide in his slaves. Now, a slave for God was a high honor, but he's saying, I don't call you slaves anymore because a slave master does not explain his motives to a slave. However, a friend shares with a friend. And so he says, now you are my friends since I have told you everything the Father told me. Again, we have his word as well. We are his friends and he has shared all of this with us. Jesus calls them. He calls us. He says, follow me. And then we respond. That's verse 16. You didn't choose me. I chose you. I called you. You respond. It says, I appointed you to go and produce lasting fruit so that the Father will give you whatever you ask for using my name. This is my command. Love each other. He chose them to share his ministry, to produce the fruit of the true vine, this enduring fruit of changing to be more like Christ and also bringing more lives into union with Christ. And as we look through this here, verse 16, you know, says, I chose you. What are we chosen for? If we look back through this section here from verses 9 uh, through 17, we see we're chosen for joy. We're chosen for love. We're chosen to be his friends. We're chosen to be his partners in this work. We're chosen to be his ambassadors to the world, and we're chosen to be an advertisement for him, to bear fruit, to look more and more like Jesus so that others see those qualities in us. But then he warns them and he says, but if the world hates you, remember it hated me first. As Christians, we're aliens in this world. The world is going to treat us as such. We are going to look different and people are going to question us they might ridicule us. They might hate us, as this says, but it says, remember it hated me first. He goes on to explain this a little bit more. Tells them what this might look like. Verse 21, they'll do all of this 
to you because of me, for they have rejected the one who sent me. Jesus was persecuted on earth, and he continues to be persecuted as we, as his followers, are persecuted. He says in verse 23, anyone who hates me also hates my father. They hadn't recognized Jesus as the son of God, and therefore they wouldn't have recognized the father either. But in hating Jesus, they were hating God. It goes on in verse 24 and says, I did many signs, and yet they refused to believe me. And then down in verse 26, but I will send the advocate. We learned about this in our last um, time together. The spirit of truth. He will come to you from the Father and will testify about me. And you must also testify about me because you have been with me from the beginning of my ministry. So the Holy Spirit takes up Jesus's work of witness to the world, and then he enables the disciples and us to continue to testify to the world and tell the world who Jesus is. Now Jesus goes on and he explains in the beginning of chapter 16 why he just told them all of this, why he told them there's going to be persecution, why he told us things might get hard. 16 verse 1 says, I've told you these things so that you won't abandon your faith. In other words, I have warned you. If troubles come without forewarning, it would be easy to become resentful, to feel like Jesus had let them down, to run away, turn away from their faith. Jesus knew the persecution that they would face, and he didn't want anyone to say that they didn't know what to expect in being his follower. He doesn't want us to walk into this blindly. He's telling us it's going to be hard. Some days are going to be hard and you're going to feel so different than the world around you. But keep your eyes on me. Put your eyes above the everyday. Look above what's going on around you. And remember, the world persecuted me, Jesus, first. He's trying to impress this upon them. He says it over and over because he doesn't want them or you, to be taken by surprise. It wasn't necessary to warn them of this earlier because he has been with them earlier. In verse 4, he's explaining this. I was going to be with you, so I didn't need to warn you of this earlier because I could deflect the attack from you earlier on. But now as I'm leaving, you're going to be the object of the attack. And he explains to them the persecution that's coming, that they're going to be kicked out of the synagogue, which was incredibly hard for a Jew, because that was where you brought your offerings. That was where you met the Lord. That was where you did your worship. And to not be able to be in the synagogue was a big deal. Plus, it meant that they'd be alone. They wouldn't be able to gather with the other Jews. But he told them that their persecution could even involve death. But he reminds them again in this next section that he's going away, but that he's sending the advocate, the Holy Spirit, to come. They're feeling frustrated and upset, as you would too if you were sitting there being told, you guys might die for following me. Verse 6, he says, instead you grieve because of what I've told you. They were dismayed at the warning of persecution. But it's best that I go away, verse 7, because if I don't, the advocate won't come. 
If I do, I will send him to you. So he's assuring them once again, the Holy Spirit will compensate for the loss of his physical presence because the Holy Spirit is going to come and he's going to convict them. And then he goes on in the next couple of verses to talk more about what the Holy Spirit does. In verse eight, he says, he will convict the world of its sin and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. He convicts men of sin. He convinces men of God's righteousness, and he convinces men that judgment will be coming. But it doesn't end there because the Holy Spirit gives us certainty that our salvation is found in the cross of Jesus. Verse 12, he says, there's so much more I want to tell you guys, but you can't bear it now. He realizes their threshold and they have maxed out at this point. So he just reminds them again, when the Holy Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own, but he will tell you what he has heard. He will tell you about the future. He will bring me glory by telling you whatever he receives from me. So just like Jesus has brought the Father glory by telling his disciples what the Father has told him, now he's saying, and I will pass messages to the Holy Spirit who's going to tell them to you, and that will bring me glory. I think it's important to note here in verse 13, it says the Holy Spirit is a spirit of truth. His great work is to bring God's truth to men. And we contrast that, remember, with what we had talked about with the devil, with the Satan a few chapters ago when it said that he is the father of lies, that his very nature is deceit, that he only speaks lies. The opposite here is true of the Holy Spirit. He is the spirit of truth. He only speaks truth. His very nature is truth. And remember last time we talked about Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And whatever is true of Jesus is true of the Father, is also true of the Holy Spirit. His very nature is truth. So there are things that Jesus couldn't yet teach them, but the Holy Spirit is going to continue to reveal truth to them and to us as we are able to understand it. And I love that. You know, in verse 12, Jesus is saying, that's it. That's your threshold for right now. This is all you guys are capable of grasping. I don't want to overdo it. You're just going to get overwhelmed and you don't get it yet. And the same is true for us as we continue on our journey with Jesus. The Holy Spirit reveals things to us periodically that in the past we weren't ready to understand. We weren't capable of understanding. We hadn't grown to the point of being able to grasp these new truths. And so our journey with Jesus and with the Holy Spirit revealing things to us is this continual journey of continual learning. As we're able to understand, the Holy Spirit reveals truth to us. And that truth that is revealed comes from God. Truth is not our discovery. Truth is God's gift to us, and he gives it through the Holy Spirit. The nearer we live to Jesus, the better we will know him. As we submit to God, we will get more and more knowledge of him. The Holy Spirit will reveal more and more truth. So the disciples go on and they're a little bit confused. Like, what does he mean by a little while? He's going away. Like, we don't get that. Could mean the time between the death and resurrection or between the resurrection and second coming. They, of course, don't know of either of these, any of this really yet. And so they're a little bit confused. 
Jesus realizes that they're having this little debate. And so he assures them, the grief you're going to have will be short-lived and it will give way to joy. That's all they needed to hear. Jesus continues to assure them, verse 22, so you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. Then you will rejoice and no one can rob you of that joy. When Jesus comes back, he will have defeated death. And that means salvation is available to all of us and no one can take that joy away from us. And then he goes on and he talks a little bit about prayer. He talks about the fact that at that time, we will be able to pray and speak to the Father directly and that we will use his name to ask our requests. It says, you haven't done this before. Ask using my name and you will receive and you will have abundant joy. And so this is an important addition to what we've learned from Jesus about prayer. And that is that when we pray, we ask things in his name. Our ability to do that is based on a close relationship with Jesus. It was based on their close relationship with Jesus. They hadn't had to pray this way before because they had had Jesus and their access to the Father was through him. But now we have access to the Father in Jesus' name. And this is a privilege that we have. But it goes on in verse 26, then you'll ask in my name. I'm not saying I will ask the Father on your behalf for the Father himself loves you dearly because you love me and believe that I came from God. The Father doesn't have to be persuaded by Jesus. He loves Jesus's disciples and is ready to answer their prayers. Can you imagine how this must have made these men felt? They're just probably at this point, their minds are ready to absolutely explode with everything that Jesus is telling them about how things are about to change and about the fact that as they abide in him, as they remain in him, as they bear fruit and grow more and more like him, that they're going to be able to ask the Father for things in Jesus' name, and they're going to be able to get their requests. And the reason is because as we remain in him, as we bear fruit and become more like him, our requests will be the very requests of Jesus. Our requests will no longer be sinful or selfish requests. We will start having selfless requests, requests that have an aim at glorifying God, just like Jesus only ever asked, God, may I glorify you. This chapter wraps up with Jesus saying to them, do you finally believe? Indeed. Oh, but the time is coming. Indeed, it's here now when you will be scattered, each one going to his own way, leaving me alone. Yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. I've told you all this so you may have peace in me, the same peace that we talked about last time. Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. Jesus could read their hearts. He knew the strength of their belief in him. And yet despite their faith and their love, he knew that they were still going to desert him in his hour of need. They were about to run and hide because they were going to be looking around them at the circumstances, at the guards coming in to get get Jesus and take him to the crucifixion. And people are fickle. Even these men who lived with Jesus day in, day out, saw him perform the miracles, heard his teaching firsthand, 
Even they were going to run away. But Jesus says in that moment, I am not alone because the Father's with me. And that's a reminder to us as well. People are fickle and there may be a day when you feel like you are all alone and people have turned their backs on you, they've run from you, they have left you to endure trials and sorrows on your own. But the reminder is that the Father is with you as well. And we can have peace, the peace of Jesus in those hard days like we talked about last time because Jesus has conquered death. The peace that we have comes from the knowledge of where our souls lie. And they lie in the hands of the Father. No one can snatch us from Him. What a joyful way to end this chapter. Take heart, He has overcome the world. Keep looking above, ladies. <laughs>